Well, it's uh, January 6, 2019. You know, this is a, a significant number or significant date for us. And one of them is a sobering um, anniversary. And that's the anniversary of our dear friend Lenny's death three years ago on January 6th. January 6th is also the Feast of the Epiphany. How many of you knew that? A couple of you knew that, yeah. Do you know what the Epiphany is? Sometimes, on the Eastern Church, it's called the Theophany. Isn't that interesting? The Epiphany, literally, both either Epiphany or Theophany, mean the appearance of a deity to a human being. It's a manifestation of, of a god or a deity to a human being. It also, obviously, can mean just an enlightenment or, or, or an appearance of, of new insight in more colloquial terms. But here, epiphany, theophany, mean the appearance of God with us, Emmanuel. And this is the date, liturgically, that the church has for you know a millennium and a half at least celebrated this moment when the Magi, the Magi, came and visited Jesus. It's understood as the... Um, the appearance of Jesus as God to the Gentiles, because the Magi were Gentiles. But it's also, paradoxically, the time that Jesus was made known to the Jews through the Magi, because Herod and his court knew nothing of it until the Magi came and told him. So it's this idea of the appearance of God with us, among us, in human form. And it's a very sacred holiday um, for the church historically. Uh, the Eastern Church, it's interesting, Eastern Orthodox Church, they understand the theophany to be Jesus' baptism. Why would they put the baptism at the same time as the, the visit from the Magi? Because they understood that Jesus was baptized exactly 30 years after he was born, on his 30th. So it's the, the, the time slots coincide, <laughs> if you were. In Ireland, it's called Little Christmas, and it's also called Three Kings Day even though the Magi weren't kings and there probably weren't three. But other than that, it's a really good title, don't you think? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Um, liturgically, though, also, the Feast of the Epiphany, January 6th, marks, marks the transition between Christmas tide and Epiphany tide. And did you know that the full Christmas season is 40 days? There's that number 40 again, you know, just like Lent is 40. And that number 40, the time of trial and testing and transition into new birth, is here present again in the church's liturgy. But we don't have that anymore. We don't understand. And I wanted to take just a minute to try to bring home the, the full impact that the, liturg the liturgical church or the liturgy had on the people themselves. So... Christmas tide, the Christmas season was thought to begin on December 25th. That was the the, uh, the traditional time. That's when all the decorations went up. And traditionally, they were wreaths that were made out of local plants and hung on the doors, and trees, of course, and other things that they would use to decorate. So the decorations would go up on December 25th, and then there were, guess what, the 12 days of Christmas. Christmas tide is 12 days. So we all know the song, and each one of those items from the 12 days of Christmas also was coded and had symbolic meaning within the church. But the 12 days of Christmas also contained many other holidays within the period from Christmas Day to Epiphany Eve, which was also called Twelfth Night. And on Twelfth Night, 
any of you Shakespeare fans know about Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night was a, a major festival that they would have. But the entire 12 days was marked with merrymaking and festivities and, and food. And on the 26th, you had uh, St. Stephen's Day. On the 28th was uh, Childermas, which was commemorating the slaughter of the innocents by Herod. And then you had New Year's Eve. And then on New Year's Day, it was the festival of the circumcision of Jesus and also Mary as mother of God. And then there was also, finally, if I can read my notes here, uh, on New Year's Day, the Holy Family was also celebrated. So even within this 12 days, you had all these other festivals and feasts happening. So it was a very busy time within the church. Something was always being celebrated, and the people were in this party mode and, and in this celebratory mode. It was a real time where the villages came together. And this would be Western Europe in the, in the traditionally Christian um, nations of the West, but also the Orthodox churches of the East. And then you hit Epiphany. And Epiphany, of course, is what we just talked about. What happens on Epiphany? What would the people do? Well, in the Eastern Church, interestingly enough, there were church services, of course, and there was special food and whatnot. In the Eastern Church, especially the Western, Western Church, Russian Church, they did ice swimming. Have you seen this before? Where they literally jump into... Now, in Russia, of course, most of the bodies of water are frozen over. In olden times, what they would actually do is they would cut a cross-shaped hole in the ice and people would jump into the ice-cold water. Why in the world was that celebrated here? Because remember, they're looking at Epiphany or Theophany as a baptism of Jesus. And so their folklore was that on this day, all water became holy. And if you went into it, just happened to be winter, unfortunately. If you went into it, it would heal you and had healing properties and so on and so forth. Plus, it was bringing you into communion with the Lord as well. So winter swimming, house blessing, and star singing was something. What's star singing? Kind of like Christmas caroling, only the kids would dress up like the, the magi, and they would carry a rod with a star on the end as if they were following the star and singing from house to house. So this was all epiphany celebrations. But the one that I like the best and the one that, that really struck me was called Chalking the Door. And I don't know, Bob, do you remember this back at home? Did they ever do Chalking the Door back in Scotland? No? He's messing with my thunder here. What can I say? If you take, if you take a look at your inserts, there's a picture there of what this looks like. And what would happen is on Epiphany, you would take a piece of chalk to your priest and your priest would bless the chalk. And that blessed chalk, you would come back and you would write a very specific pattern on your door or the lintel or beside the door. This one is beside the door. And the pattern was you would first put the year, the the first two digits of the year and the last two digits of the year on the first or the end of the string. So for us, it would be 20 and then the end would be 19, right? And then you would put a little cross. So it would be 20, a cross, and then a letter C, and a cross, a letter M, and a cross, and a letter B, and a cross, and then the 19. And so that would be the string. Now, what's going on here besides the year? Well, of course, there is the year. Then each cross was a symbol of Christ. But the C and the M and the B are interesting. The traditional names of the three magi, if there were three, is Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, C, M, B. But also, in Latin, Christus Mansionem Benedicta would be, may Christ bless this house. And so you had two levels there. And remember, this echoes back to Pesach, echoes back to Jewish Passover, where they marked the lintels of their door so that 
the angel would pass over their home and spare their house. The idea here was that this marking, this chalk marking from blessed chalk, would keep those evil spirits away for the year, and then it would repeat, be repeated the next epiphany and the one after that. But it was a way of blessing the house. And it's just, it's just that wonderful custom, you know, except maybe in Scotland, because chalking the door in Scotland also was the way you made an eviction notice for your tenant. So maybe that wasn't so good. That's probably what Bob remembers. I don't know. Either that or all my research is wrong, and never mind anything I just said. If you remember nothing about what I was just talking about in terms of Christmas tide moving into uh, Epiphany tide, which ends on Candlemas on February second, Candlemas remembers and commemorates the presentation of Jesus to the temple. But it's a time when they bless the candles. So at Epiphany, they bless the homes, but. On Candlemas, they blessed the candles. Remember, this is a time when your candles were the only illumination you had in your house. It was also symbolic of Jesus' light of the world, but you brought all your candles that you had prepared that were going to light your house for the year, and they were blessed on Candlemas as well. And so the tradition was that the decorations that you put up on Christmas Day, and this is the part you've got to pay attention to, the decorations you put up on Christmas Day were supposed to be down by Twelfth Night. It was very unlucky and a bad omen if you left your decorations up past Twelfth Night, which was set last night, right? And if you did forget to take your decorations down by Twelfth Night, then you had to leave them up all the way until Candlemas, or it was doubly bad luck. So if you don't have your decorations down, leave them in place until February 2nd. You notice we got our decorations down in time because we need all the help we can get. So Now, Having said that, having talked about this, this liturgical and cultural celebration of the Christmas season, now you may think it's cute and it's quaint, or maybe it's silly and it's superstitious, but it's also a lot of fun. And it's beautiful in the, symbol, in the symbolism and what's going on here. And we don't have that anymore. All our cultural markers have, have dissolved over time. We don't have the liturgy anymore. You know, we're not part of liturgical churches. The church doesn't have the position in the culture, in the society anymore, to force these kinds of cultural changes or shape on the people anyway. We live in a secular culture. The church doesn't have that power, even if it still had the liturgy, which some churches do. But I didn't grow up with these kind of traditions in the Catholic Church. Obviously, Bob didn't grow up in the Scottish Church either. So, but they were there, and they were there in ancient times. And what they did, think about how this would work, in, in especially in a village culture, in a small culture, how it would unify the people. How they knew what they were doing was what the person in the next house and the next house and the next home and across town, that they were all doing the same thing. How that kind of... Shared experience, shared ritual, shared practice would bind everyone together. Not only do we live in a secular culture, but we live in an extremely diverse culture that is trying so hard to honor all traditions that Christmas tide is, is just happy holidays now, right? We, we're, we're not supposed to make specific injunctions about any one religion because we're trying to bring in everyone. That's beautiful as well. But it doesn't serve to bind the people together the way this ancient tradition did. And we're missing something there. 
I mean, for us, Christmas decorations go up at Thanksgiving now, don't they? <laughs> and then they last till whenever we take them down. But our holidays that we talk about are basically Thanksgiving, Christmas Day, and New Year's Day. Those are our holidays, and they're marked by what? By food, by gifts, by parties. What is it that we can reinstitute? What is it that we can put back in? If it's not these liturgical practices, they give us a pattern, give us a shape, give us a way of being able to order our choices and order our relationships with each other that's going to bring this Christmas tide alive for us, bring the appearance, the epiphany of God with us into our backyards, into the forefronts of our minds. This is what we have to talk about. Well, I suppose there are New Year's resolutions. How about that? How many of you make New Year's resolutions? <laughs> we got one. That's about right. You know, people are vowing. They're resolving not to resolve these days. They don't want to make New Year's. Why is, is New, do New Year's resolutions have such a bad rap these days? They don't hang around, do they? You know? There's, there's, a, there's an old saying, or actually I think it's a rather new saying that says, may your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. That's a blessing. So it's sort of an invitation to failure, isn't it? As soon as you resolve to do something, you put yourself on record, especially if you tell anybody else, now you can actually measure the failure. It's kind of like if the whole office buys a lottery ticket and you don't and they win, you could actually know that you lost. You wouldn't know otherwise if you didn't buy the ticket, right, on your own. It's the same thing here. And so there is an aversion to wanting to do this. And I thought maybe we would take a look at a couple of resolutions here. Do you know what the top ten New Year's resolutions are for people? Weight is, right, weight is number two. Number one is earn more money. Lose weight. Get organized. Manage time better. Spend more quality time with the family. Reduce debt. Kind of the flip side of the other. Help others. Find a soulmate or work on your marriage. Find a better job. Quit smoking. Okay? Top ten New Year's resolutions. And, of course, there was this, this actress. She was the one from my big fat Greek wedding. She said, my New Year's resolution list usually starts with a desire to lose between ten and 3,000 pounds. <laughs> I like that. But we know that New Year's resolutions don't really go very far. About 90% of New Year's resolutions won't be kept. So, Nina, you're part of the 3%? Okay, good. 30% of all New Year's resolutions are broken within the first week. Most resolutions are abandoned by the third week in January. 45% of Americans usually do set New Year's resolutions. At least I don't know how many years ago this was. But now we've got one in 60 or so. But 45%, but only 8% are always successful in achieving their resolutions. Now, here's interesting. The younger you are, the more likely you are to achieve your resolutions. 39% in their 20s achieve resolutions every year or every other year. Less than 15% over 50 achieve resolutions every year or every other year. And fascinatingly, the less happy you are, the more likely you are to set New Year's resolutions. I guess that makes sense, right? The less happy you are, the more you're going to want to change. But here's the kicker. There is actually no correlation between happiness and resolution setting. 
success or failure. People who achieve their resolutions every year are no happier than those who do not set resolutions or who are unsuccessful in achieving their resolutions. Now that to me is really interesting. It makes sense that if you're unhappy, you're going to set a resolution. But it's interesting that you will be no happier if you do or if you achieve it or if you don't. But really, if you drill down from there, it makes perfect sense again because happiness does not come from our accomplishments or our circumstances. Happiness comes from a completely different direction. And until we start to really get in tune with that, until we start making choices based on that reality, nothing's going to change in our lives. We're not going to be able to experience the kind of serenity, the kind of peace that we're after by trying to accomplish something. It doesn't work that way. Why are resolutions, New Year's or otherwise, so hard to keep? Look at that top ten again. You can't look at it. I'll look at it for you. (laughs) Every single one of those is not an event. Every single one of those is not something that you can just set your mind to and assent to. It's not an impulse buy. It's not something you can just do on an impulse. Every one of these are lifestyle choices. And that comes from a completely different direction. It's like learning a new language or learning to ride a bike or learning to play a musical instrument. It takes muscle memory. It takes just doing something over and over again. It's not about an event as it is about an ongoing practice. And it's only as good as the practice is consistent. You know? It's not an intellectual decision, but repeated, ongoing action with discipline, with dedication, until this change actually takes. It takes hold. Anything worth having in life is like this, isn't it? It's a result of repeated action over and over again. This is the problem that I have with bucket lists. You know what a bucket list is? Something you want to do before you kick the bucket? And so we have these lists of all these amazing things that we want to do. But the problem is that we're not defined by what we do just once. We are defined by what we do over and over and over each and every day, over and over again. That's what defines us. And even though consistency is usually looked at as boring, it's disrespected, and we long for that great, spectacular, spontaneous thing that we want to do, what we really do value is consistency. Isn't it? Don't you want to know when you go to the store it's going to be open? Don't you want to know that when you're craving that bagel with cream cheese that it's going to be open, that they're going to be there? What we do and what we show up for, we crave the consistency. The the fact that the sun comes up every morning is consistent. That, That is something that is reassuring to us. Things that happen over and over again. People who are faithful and keep showing up over and over again. They give us comfort. They give us joy. The fact that I can come in here to church at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning and know that John and Linda will already be here setting things up, that's comforting. I value that. What is it about 20 years of getting up and making breakfast and making lunches for kids and driving kids everywhere they need to go and doing homework every day over and over and over again? These are the things that matter. These are the things that define who we are. They tell us and they tell everyone where our values are being placed. 
And yes, maybe it kind of fades into grayness. And we don't even see the value of what we're doing as we get up every day and do the things that we do. Get up when we don't feel like it. Go to work and commute when we don't feel like it. Stay through the day. Come home and do the chores. This is what defines us. The bucket list missed that point. Yes, they're fun. But what we're defined by is what we get up every day, show up, and do consistently. But there's a second point that I want to add to this that is critical. Because what we do over and over again defines our character as a person. But it never defines our circumstances. It never defines our outcome. And this is something that is difficult for us to swallow. If we get up every day and we do the do and we work hard and we're consistent, why don't we get the outcome that we're looking for all the time? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Sometimes other people do and they didn't work as hard as we were. They, they weren't as consistent as we were. And that creates that cognitive dissonance. And so there is a disconnect. And the old cliche is, is that we are not in control of our outcomes, right? We're not in control of, of the results. And when our heads go up and down and we say that we believe that, but most of us don't live as if we believe that. Most of us are stressed. Most of us are anxious. Most of us are worried about the future, about striving to get to the outcome that we think is going to give us the happiness, that we think is going to give us the peace, that we think is going to give us everything that we need. Even though if we accomplish all our New Year's resolutions, statistics tell us we're not going to be any happier than we are now. But this is something that we have to take a look at. Most of us measure our worth to ourselves, to each other, to God, by our accomplishments, by the outcomes that we achieve. On Friday night, we had our party. How many of you were at the party? A lot of us were. It was great. It was a great party. We ended with a white elephant gift exchange. You know what that is? White elephant gift exchange. That's where you, you bring these little gifts. You ever wonder why it's called white elephant? Anyone know why it's called white elephant? I'm just going to give you all kinds of tidbits for free here this morning. <laughs> You do what you want with them. A white elephant in the Southeast Asia, and especially the king of Siam is the one who's kind of credited with this. A white elephant was a rare elephant, not exactly an albino, but this off-color elephant that was sacred to their culture. So you couldn't kill it, you couldn't hurt it. It's like a sacred cow, sacred white elephant, right? And so the king of Siam, if someone displeased him, what he would do is he'd gift them with a white elephant from his herd because they were absolutely... (laughs) impossible to maintain. The cost was so overwhelming to maintain. And you couldn't give it away, and you couldn't kill it. You just had to keep it. You would ruin someone financially if you gave them a white elephant. So it kind of moved into our our cultural usage as a, a, a possession of some sort whose cost outweighs its usefulness, and you really can't do anything with it. And so churches would have white elephant sales where everybody brought the stuff that they had no idea what to do with anymore, and they'd sell it because one man's, you know, treasure is the other man's trash and so on and so forth. But a white elephant gift exchange is the same thing. You kind of bring something. They're kind of gag gifts. They're not very expensive. The whole point of it is to be entertained and not to get something of value. And so you exchange the gift, or you you get to pick gifts, and then you can steal a gift from somebody else. And we went through, like, 26, 28 gifts, and people were stealing back and forth. And someone had one thing. There was one thing everybody wanted. It was this this wireless Bluetooth speaker. Everybody wanted the speaker, right? And it got stolen, like, three times. 
I'm sitting there and I'm watching this go. You know, of course, I've done this before, but I was thinking, you know, here's the key to enjoying the white elephant gift exchange. Is you have to hold really lightly to your gift because it's not safe until it's been stolen three times. And you know that, right? So no matter how much you want this thing. So the trick is not to really want anything too much, I guess, because it could get stolen. But it was a perfect analog for life, I was thinking. You know, these things that we hold on to, these things that we cling to, but they can be taken from us at any time. Or these things that we imagine out in the future as the outcome that we're after that may never come to pass. Can we still enjoy the game? Can we still enjoy our moments holding lightly to the things that we have and even more lightly to the things that we want out of life and just keep playing the game and laugh about it with each other? I had just prayed before we went into the the White Elephant game on Friday night, that this is a time of real uncertainty for us. You know, we, we've got six months to find a new place. Um, so far, nothing yet. We know in six months everything is going to change. We don't know how. And it is kind of nerve-wracking as, as we're working really hard to make certain things happen and trying to exhaust and kiss the frogs that we need to kiss to see what comes through. Can we do that? Can I do that? In such a way that I can still enjoy everything that I'm doing. So be just as present to my wife, my family, to you, and to everything that I'm doing, even as I work hard, even as we, as a community, strive for the things that we need as a community. But have no idea how this is going to play out. It's just like the white elephant gift exchange, holding lightly to these things. You know, someone just wrote to uh, Marion and me, and she said, I love this. She said, my trust has never wavered in God, but my expectations have changed 100%. I love that. It's a great way of putting it. It is possible for us to continue to trust God, even in the face of all the things that we don't know, even in the face of the fears and the, and the anxiety that we have. We can trust that everything is going to be okay But we need to adjust our expectations because God is not the vending machine in the sky who will give us exactly what we ask for in the way that we ask for it. We know that. Our lives have proven that. If we can adjust our expectations, our trust can remain solid. It's when we conflate the two. It's when we put those two together that we start experiencing the loss of trust because now God has not performed. Expectations have not been met outcomes remain elusive and everything goes the other way. As always, what I always want to do is look to Jesus to see what his model is. How does he pray? How does he live? How does he choose? How does he model for us this way through, especially when we're coming to a new year? And I think what I want to do is take a look at the opposite end of his life. I know we're talking about his birth and the epiphany. But just the day before he died on the cross at Matthew 26, he was at the the supper in the upper room with his friends. And he leads them out of that supper over to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a favorite place for him to pray. But he has his group, his troops with him at this time. He takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he goes a little further out in, into the grove, and he sits them down, and he says, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. 
This is Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And look at what's going on here. What are we seeing here in Jesus? We're seeing the stages of grief, aren't we? I mean, he just said there, my soul is grieving to the point of death. This is grief. This is loss. And the stages, remember the stages of grief? Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Five stages of grief. No, they don't all go in that neat order. You know, you skip some, you move around, and you go circle back. And But we're seeing the stages of grief in Jesus. And remember, this didn't all just happen in one night. Jesus was aware of this impending for however long he was aware. Months, years, building up to this point. The grief process had to have started before because he was talking more and more to his disciples over the last days and weeks of his life about what was coming. He was feeling that. Was there a stage where he experienced denial? I don't know. It's not stated in the Gospels. It doesn't have to have happened. But depression? Yeah, I think you can certainly say he was facing depression. He's facing fear here that is so intense you would have to call it some kind of panic attack right here. To sweat blood, do you know that that's an actual physical condition? You can do that. If your blood pressure goes so high, you can actually force blood through the capillaries. That can actually happen. But think about the stress. Think about what he was feeling at that time. And what does he do when he's talking to his father there by himself? He's bargaining. (laughs) If there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me there's any way that we can do this in another way, that I don't have to go through this, please. Anger? Come back and find your best friend sleeping in the midst of your major trial in life? You guys, you can't even stay awake with me for one hour. Read between the lines here. It was there, I'm sure. And this hour that he talks about, in the Greek, in the Aramaic, it doesn't mean a neat 30-minute passage. It can be pretty much any bounded segment of time. So this, even though it looks like it was a short happening, you know, he goes out and he prays, he comes back, he prays. This probably went on most of the night, if not the entire night. Jesus at the point where this is all coming to a head, working through these stages in a way that is 
beautifully preserved and captured in the scriptures for us, seeing how this goes through. But what does he do? He comes back time and time again, no matter what stage of the grieving process he's going through, he comes back, but not my will, but yours be done. If it can't be done any other way, your will is the way. And what he finally comes back to at the end is the acceptance, the reconnection of his will and God's will, to accept the circumstances as they are, to accept the consequences of perfect love acted out consistently in an imperfect world. Where does that end up? To continue to be vulnerable, to to continue to be open, to continue to put yourself out there, to speak truth to power, to be truth, to be vulnerability, to be love, always ends at the cross. Jesus knows that. He accepts that and realizes that any other way is going to blunt the message that he was here to give us, to blunt the will of the Father that he was portraying. And so he comes back into connection with that will. He accepts his place. He accepts his circumstances. And look what happens, starting at verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomember I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit consistently, every day, in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all his disciples, all his friends, fled and left him. This is changed man. This is not the man that we see just a few hours before sweating blood and bargaining with his father. This is a man who is composed. This is a man who is purposeful. This is a man who knows what he's about. He accepts Judas' kiss graciously, right? He heals the ear of the servant who is struck. And then he confronts and corrects Peter for doing it. It's not this gospel, but another one tells us that was Peter who cut off Malchus's ear. And then he addresses the crowd as the way he does. This is someone who has the sense again of who he is. It's all about acceptance of circumstances, of choices, of nature, of our nature, of character, of God's character. It's about identity, our own identity, knowing who we really are. To be sweating blood is to be fearing our circumstances, right? Trying to change or manage or even manipulate outcomes. 
And as long as we can't accept ourselves as we are, our moments as they are, we're going to be miserable. We're going to be sweating blood. As long as we're clinging so tightly to the gifts that we have, or even our view of ourselves as we think we are, or the things that we want that have not yet been realized in our lives, we live in fear. And as long as we're doing that, there is no way for us to grow. There is no way for us to change. Because we're not looking in the right direction. We're looking out there somewhere. When the only way to change is to turn and look inward. To realize it's not about conforming, it's about transforming, which comes in a completely different direction. Those of you who are in the program are probably already hearing what I want to read next out of the big book. Very famous passage. But take a listen. If you're not familiar with it, listen carefully. If you are familiar with it, let it flow back over you. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. Perhaps the best thing of all for me is to remember that my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations of people are, the lower is my serenity. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity? Acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. I never just sit and do nothing while waiting for him to tell me what to do. Rather, I do whatever is in front of me to be done, and I leave the results up to him. However it turns out, that's God's will for me. It's brilliant. Can't be said any better than that. At the start of a new year, at the Feast of the Epiphany, the appearance of God with us, can we keep showing up to consistently do what we do that is right in front of us to do? Can we leave the results to God? As if whatever comes, regardless of what we want or what we're expecting, is right in the center of God's will. Whatever comes is still right in the center of God's will. Because if we can do that, then it will be right in the center of God's will. Because God's will is always the how of the doing and not the what of the outcome. And if we cannot get that tamped way down deep into our muscle memory, we're never, ever going to be comfortable in our own skin. We're going to keep sweating blood and we're going to miss the epiphany of God with us. We have a tradition at the effect, and we did that last Sunday, where we decorate the Christmas tree. I point over there. It's not there anymore. And we write on, on, on the uh, ornaments. 
we had a table over here and there were pens and these bulbs and everybody could write anything that they wanted to. They could write a gratitude. They could write a prayer. They could write about an outcome that was desired or they could write about anything that they wanted to write. And when we took the tree down, we gathered up all the bulbs and we read through them. And there's a few that were just so amazing. I want to read them to you today. All anonymous, of course. But it just shows that our people in our community are moving. And it was just so inspiring to me. Here's one. Please help us to love. Take the love I have learned here at The Effect and to share it. I am grateful for my struggles because they have brought me closer to you and closer to my family. I love you, Mom and Dad. Thank you, my love, for family back together, woman I love with all my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all you have blessed us with, so much more than we deserve. My life is good today only because of you, Lord. I do pray that you continue to bless us with love and your presence. I pray for healing for all the lost souls, that they may find you, have a good life. I love you, God. I love you, Jesus. This one. May the outcome of my dad's trial be your decision, Lord. I will support it. May the outcome of my dad's trial be your decision, Lord. I will support it and keep my mother safe and know that she can come back to the family. And this last one. Most of all, I am amazed how easily I have come to embrace and actually hunger for more of this magic that seems to have possessed me. My soul soars to the sound of the beautiful music being played, and I am finding the spoken words of the scriptures have a whole new meaning, and I am so much more aware of the countless blessings I once took for granted. I have a reason to live, but I am not afraid to die. I believe. And can you believe that person got all that on one bulb? (laughs) It was fun trying to turn the bulb and type at the same time. You know, these people are my heroes. They should be your heroes too. Jesus is my hero. The figures of scripture are my heroes. But these people just as much because they are the ones who show me that the consistency is never really boring if it's entered into in this way. It's always new. It's always changing. It's always based on the lived moment. But it is a consistency that brings us to be able to write what they wrote on these ornaments. They have experienced something that they hadn't experienced before. Not as an event, but as the result of showing up to something day in and day out. And what they also show me is that I can do this too. Jesus told us that. These things you see me do, you can do. Greater things than these. That it's possible to show up, to work hard, but at the same time to hold my gifts lightly. To hold the outcomes lightly. All this. Just by consistently living and sharing their epiphanies. Their moments of the appearance of their God with them that brings the appearance of God real to me and to all of us. This new year, this epiphany, let's lean in. Let's start living as if these things are true. 
train ourselves to come back to the moment every time we find ourselves out there gripping so tightly to something that can't be gripped, can't be held, and come back to the one thing that we can never lose, which is God's presence, God's grace, God's love for us. That's what we can hold on to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another year. Thank you that we're here breathing, that we're here to praise you, praise your creation, and to enjoy each other in every moment. Help us to learn to play life like that, laughing at the entertainment value rather than fixating on the way things should be. Help us to celebrate just the real-time presence and movement of your Spirit through our lives and through our moments and through our relationships. See that primarily, even as we plan and even as we work. It's a balancing act, Father, that you need to help us with because it's so difficult, and you know how difficult it is for us. So thank you for preparing us and giving us everything that we need. Help us to continue to meet you every moment. Father, we love you. Thank you for this new year once again. We pray this realizing that we can only love or do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.